0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Reports like this one are all too common in Denver. Lodo's night scene turned deadly when gunshots rang out near 15th and Market that began when a fight broke out in a group of people just before 2 a.m. That is from CBS 4 earlier this year. The shooting left one dead, another injured. And the timing may be important here. Violence often occurs in Lodo before 2 a.m. when bars outside casino districts close under state law. Well, a bill at the state capitol would allow cities and counties to set last call. Sponsors say that would let Denver extend hours and perhaps space out a mass exodus in Lodo. But not all bar bar owners are on board with this. Isaac Leon co-owns the Front Porch and two other bars in the neighborhood. He is against the bill. Welcome to the program. Hello, everybody. And Andrew Feinstein is a managing partner at Trax Nightclub in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. He supports this legislation. And thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate so, it. Isaac, supporters presumably designed this bill to help you. They say it could make Loto safer at night. Longer hours could mean more sales. Why are you opposed to it?
1: Well, despite the uh, options that the hours that this bill proposes gives me, market forces will make me stay open just to stay competitive. In order to face the new problem that that will pose, uh, I'd have to oversee the operating hours and have to increase my staffing, which cuts into the business margins in general. And ultimately, really, it shows no financial incentive. It really does compromise the livelihood of the business, the staff, as well as myself. And then on top of that, it compromises my brand, which... Is designed for the current hours of operation.
0: So it would raise your overhead, you're saying, so much so that the extended business you could do in those longer hours would be eclipsed?
1: Yes. uh, The only reason why I say that is because since I've never, and I've been doing this for quite some time in that location, well, not that location, but for downtown Denver, but never heard any type of public outcry saying that we need more hours to try to ease anything in any way, shape, or form. Usually... More hours incentivizes people to drink more. So if there's a 2 a.m. rush, for example, a lot of those people start to come into my establishments between like 11 and midnight. Now, if you went ahead and pushed those hours out, my clientele, despite how I studied my demographic so intimately, I know one thing supersedes it, and it's alcohol. And if they get to drink later, you have to imagine as a young adult, exciting things are on your mind with the possibilities of what's happening after 2 a.m., including alcohol at the same time. Now we get to sell it to them. If your
0: customer base isn't demanding that you mm-hmm. be open later, or I suppose earlier into the morning, uh, why not ch- just choose to close earlier? So some
1: bars could stay open later and yours could close. Well, that's a good question. But when it comes to my demographic, and as, I, as you just said, uh, for me to just choose to stay open or close later, whichever the case may be, there's one thing that really supersedes it, and it's alcohol. Uh, we could be as appealing as it could possibly be. You know, we could smell great. We could look great. Uh, you know, the energy in the room is fantastic, but there is a nice, exciting hunger with drinking later. I mean, I don't know if you guys were drinkers when you were at the age of 21 to 25. I'm 37 years old, so I'm dating myself right now. But. When I was at that age, I couldn't. uh, My imagination would run wild on what could possibly happen even later if I was able to drink later. So
0: do you think that people would stay at bars they knew were open till later?
1: They'll chase after the bars that are supplying alcohol later. And so that
0: you fear that they wouldn't then go to your bar if you decided to close earlier than others. Andrew Feinstein, tell us why you think this would increase public safety in a place like Lodo.
2: Well, I think when you have a <clears throat> a uniform closing time that's applied arbitrarily to every single bar across the state of Colorado, what sure. happens is, as we said, is two a.m. Right. outside of uh, casino Inter- districts, right, and uh, other entertainment districts that may exist around the state. But no. to me, it's a strain on resources. It's a strain on three areas of key resources. It's a strain on law enforcement when everybody gets let out at the same time. It's a strain on transportation because now you've got surge pricing with Uber, you have a lack of availability of taxi cabs, and frankly, it's a strain on your bar management. It's a strain on your staff as you're trying to get people out the door by 2 o'clock because if there is... Any alcohol or if there are any customers remaining after two and there's alcohol presence, that's a violation of your liquor law, liquor license. So it's a, it's a huge strain on resources. And I think if we had the – if local municipalities could make – had the option to make decisions based on what works for them and their resources, and then bar owners like Isaac and myself can choose when we want to close, it's a smoothing out process and thus less of a strain on those resources. Well, you could close right now at 1 a.m. if you wanted to. I could. Why not? Uh, my my particular clientele chooses to patronize our place on the later end. We are a nightclub. And uh, again, to Isaac's point about, you know, he doesn't think it makes sense for his business to stay open past two. I can't sit here and say definitively that it would make sense for us to stay open past two, but I'd like, I'd like to at least have that option and explore it. Um, but the presumption
0: there, let's say hypothetically that this bill passed in the state legislature uh, municipalities were able to set their own hours and Denver set it to, I don't know, 3.30. Mm-hmm. You are assuming that there would be cooperation among bar owners, that some would close at 2 and some would close at 2.30 and some would close at 3.30. And from what we're hearing uh, from Isaac, that's not really likely to happen. It's going to keep bars open, and there's just going to be a later mass exodus at
2: 3 or 3.30. I'm not sure that's true, and I'm not assuming that all the bars would cooperate and decide to close at the same time. Right now, the majority of liquor-licensed establishments in the state of Colorado close at midnight. So we already have somewhat of a staggered approach. The problem is is that a lot of the Lodo bars and the bars in Rhino, where Trax is based, uh, do take advantage of the fact that they can be open until 2 o'clock. I think the bottom line here is that we have to put people in a position to make a responsible decision at the end of the night. And when everyone's leaving at the exact same time and those resources of, again, law enforcement, bar management, we're tips trained, we're security trained, and again, transportation, when those options aren't available to people, uh, I don't think we're allowing them to make the most responsible decision that they can make that night.
0: Isaac Leon from The Front Porch, talk to me about that mass exodus that happens at 2 a.m. and the surge pricing for some of those ride services that might dissuade someone from taking them and then getting in the car and driving. How do you respond?
1: Well, when it comes to that 2 a.m. mass exodus, you guys aren't— that no one's lying to themselves on what they're seeing. There is such a thing, but— when we are talking about the issues of public safety i feel like this type of bill is painting a broad brush one-tool solution to something that has so many moving parts it t- it's going to take it's a community effort basically to try to tackle uh, the supposed public safety issue and if you want people to get home safer and so on and so forth to allow more hours and to depend on everyone to be responsible when they've already had alcohol inside their system mm. I have never made a fantastic or even good decision when I've had alcohol in my system. And
0: you think naturally this would lead to more alcohol consumption? I want to say that one former Lodo bar owner shares your concern, a gentleman by the name of John Hickenlooper, uh, now governor, of course. He wrote a letter to legislative leaders saying he'd only support the closing time bill if they propose, uh, rather provide data that the change wouldn't increase the incidence of DUI. To say that Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the main group opposing this bill, points to New York. That's where you're originally from, Isaac, and Mm -hmm. where something like this already is in place, right? Correct. And what happened there?
1: Well, when I left New York, I was 19, so I I wasn't really part of the drinking scene over there during that time. Well, there's
0: not a uniform closing in in New York, and a study found that counties with longer bar hours had more DUIs, as Mm -hmm. did The counties next to those counties, so there's a bit of a spillover effect. What would you say to that, Andrew?
2: Well, I agree with the Mothers Against Drunk Driving that we have to do everything possible um, to minimize uh, drinking and driving. I think that when, again, I'll repeat what I said earlier, when you have a uniform closing time and everybody leaves at the exact same time, I don't see how we have the law enforcement resources to catch those people that are drinking and driving. And yet Isaac
0: it, says that there are going to be a lot more m-
2: incredibly drunk people because you're extending hours. I think that uh, if somebody chooses to drink throughout the night, um, they're going to choose to drink throughout the night. And I think we'd be better off with them um, continuing under, the, uh, under a safe establishment and in a safe environment where we are trained to self-police these things, if you will, uh, rather than letting them out at 145 and they continue to do what they want to do and however they want to socialize somewhere else. It could be an underground club. It could be in a public park. It could be somewhere else. I think that, to me, is a danger.
0: Oh, interesting. You're saying they're driven underground in some way as opposed to drinking at an establishment where there are bouncers and people who can manage the situation,
1: Isaac? You know, Metro State back in 2014 did a study that for every hour after 1 a.m., violence increased by 16%. And then when I look at my, when I look at the clientele that come in and they want to continue that party flow, When they, when that Exodus does come out. The the problem that I always see, and I don't have the solution to it. That's why I would always say let's leave it to the professionals, the one that study hard data, such as Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Chief of uh, Police, Colorado Department of Transportation. I mean, if they were for this bill, if they thought that this was in the greater good of public safety, then why aren't they agreeing with it? Right? These people really do this every day, and they're saying that this is a bad solution.
0: So here's an interesting argument. At a hearing for this closing time bill, Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler was asked about crime around closing time in Lodo, here's how he responded. I think that's a real issue that needs to be tackled by Denver. Here's the problem that I see, is that too often we have to
1: have statewide solutions to Denver-based problems.
0: What do you think of that? That this is actually a statewide solution of what is a Lodo, even, problem?
2: Andrew? Well, briefly, Isaac mentioned Denver's chief of police. Uh, He's actually in favor of this bill, as is the Municipal League and the Tavern League and others. Um, I understand where George is coming from. But, you know, if someone from another county decides to come into Denver and not behave responsibly and bring that irresponsible behavior back to their county after the bar closes, I don't see why that's exactly Denver's problem. Uh, But again, this goes back to my original point. Let local municipalities decide what makes sense for them based on their resources and their needs. Let them figure it out. I don't think this is a quote-end-quote Denver problem. I think this is a statewide issue, and I just think that local municipalities should have the opportunity to figure this out, working with experts, like Isaac said, and working with uh, bar owners in their own municipality. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We heard
0: from Andrew Feinstein and Isaac Leon. They both run bars in Denver. They joined us to discuss a bill working its way through the Capitol, it would let municipalities decide whether to extend bar hours past the current statewide closing time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. An anonymous artist is painting intricate works all over Boulder of cats, portraits of the beat poet Neil Cassidy, for example. They appear on mailboxes, buildings, electrical boxes. The paintings are signed, Smile, and he's got a fan base, but not everyone is amused.
1: In Boulder,
3: the graffiti ordinance is very black and white.
0: Shannon accordingly, is with the Boulder Police Department. She says graffiti is against the law there. Any imagery left without permission. And there's no art police.
1: The officers do not have the ability to
3: differentiate street art and, you know, what could be construed as tagging. And in some cases, you know, people in the community do deem the work to be art. Um, However, if it's done in a public place, we have to follow the city ordinance.
0: that means Smile's art is illegal. If he's caught, he could face up to a $1,000 fine and three months in jail. But that doesn't stop him. Boulder's doing some soul-searching when it comes to street art, as we're going to hear a bit later. First, Smile agreed to speak with me if we masked his voice. The effect makes him sound really ominous, but sitting across from him, he comes across as a really nice guy. Thank you for being with us.
4: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Why did you pick the name Smile for yourself?
4: Well, you know, I thought of a lot of different monikers, but basically, my idea behind the name is, you know, I want to bring people into the moment. I want them to see stuff, you know, randomly on a mailbox or anything in the middle of town and smile. You know, forget about whatever they're worried about or whatever they're ruminating about in the future, and just be present for one, you know, five second stretch.
0: And part of that is putting art, perhaps, in places you don't expect it. Yeah, definitely. As we mentioned, your street art often features animals, cats in particular. Uh, You often paint faces as well, sometimes of famous people. Why does that kind of imagery appeal to you?
4: Well, you know, it's like the first thing I ever really drew. My mother still has it framed in her house is Mm. me, basically my face on top of my cat. So, you know, it's just sort of like an intuitive thing where I've always loved doing it. I love cats. You know, I have a couple of cats now. And it's just basically the things Mm. that make me happy. I like to present.
0: You spent much of your childhood in Boulder and, uh, as you say, drew a lot as a kid. What attracted you, though, to street art? Was it that sense of surprise?
4: Yeah, you know, that's a a large part of it. Um, Basically, in my whole life, I've been into art. You know, when I was young, 8th, ninth grade, I was in art shows. And so I saw that sort of the gallery side of the whole thing with dealing with curators and I enjoyed it, but I felt... A little bit like it's an antique market. It's something that's been around since, you know, 500 years, 600 years. And it just didn't really feel like the next step. Like so much stuff in our world now is Mm -hmm. moving on, you know, with technology. It felt stale to you. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And, you know, I also got a thrill, like coming to Denver as a kid. My dad would bring me like the zoo or a football game. And the thing that I remember is seeing Mm -hmm. graffiti.
0: How much of this is about the thrill of painting where many say you shouldn't?
4: Well, that's a bigger thrill than, you know, I I often try to say it is, but my whole life I've been a trickster and
0: it's fun. That's what I love to do. I'm going to ask you more about your process in a bit, but uh, I want to say that Boulder Law prohibits any form of, quote, painting, scratching or coloring on private or public property without consent. And police don't make distinctions, really, between street art and some would call graffiti. So your art is considered illegal vandalism in Boulder. Does that give you pause? No, to be honest, not really. It doesn't. um, I
4: don't know. I feel like it's part of something that's just growing in terms of a lot of old laws, old customs are sort of outdated. And I try to be respectful. You know, I don't want to put it on people's private property. And I try to take into consideration the way it's going to affect like the immediate people that own the property or that use the area where I put the painting. So a lot of it, I do consider the community, but not the law.
0: But wait, you said that you avoid private property. Well, on a
4: whole, I avoid private property in terms of non-city, like somebody's car, somebody's home, somebody's garage, like a personal thing. If it's more, if it's like a corporate thing where... For instance, I see there's graffiti on the side of the building. They don't clean it off. They neglect it. Then to me, that's like, wow, you know, that looks ugly right now. It's a prime target to have something pretty on it. I guess you're right. I do draw a distinction between like different levels of private property.
0: But you seem to have something of, an, of your own ethic on this. It's not that you'll do this anywhere. Oh, yeah. No. yeah. Sean Marr is the CEO of Downtown Boulder, Inc., And uh, the group removes graffiti for its members in the business district around Boulder's Pearl Street Mall, for instance. Marr told the Daily Camera that many property owners have requested not to remove your work from their property. They seem to like it. But he also said that he'd prefer you get permission from those businesses before painting. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, um,
4: That would be a step that I think would be more cooperative with the community. Uh, It's probably the kind of thing that people would expect me to do with the stance I have where I want it to be an integrated thing in the Boulder community. But, you know, for some reason, I'm just not taking that step. I'll typically do it stuff so if it's a liber- like E-Town or if it's a liberal
0: organization. So E-Town is a, a, an environmentally-minded broadcast, radio broadcast that's taped in Boulder. Yeah. So, you know, organizations like that, that, for
4: instance, on their Instagram, I've seen they post smile art or different factors will kind of lead me to say, hey, these people are going to appreciate it. They're going to enjoy it on the building.
0: But you wouldn't get E-Town's permission. You know, I probably wouldn't okay. you know. What would you say to someone who hears this and thinks, uh, this guy's a punk?
4: I would say, hey, you know, you're entitled to your opinions. <laughs> I probably would say, I kind of think you're a punk for thinking I'm a punk. But, you know, that's the way the world works. If you put yourself out there, you're going to step on a couple of toes and you're going to help people be happy. You know, it's give and
0: take. So interestingly, though you do street art, there was an exhibition of your work at a gallery in Boulder last July. And the Boulder Police Department dropped by a few times, I think hoping to run into you. Yeah. They instead wound up talking to the curator of the show. Partly, I think they want to step in and say, what are you doing? Yeah. And also I put
4: two or I would put two cats and a dog on a walking mall on some city owned property. And apparently they're very strict about street art on the actual brick walking mall So they told the curator, hey, you know, there's no outstanding uh, issues here, but we just want to let them know, don't paint on a walking mall. Did you stop? I I did one other one. Basically, it was on a building way up high, and it got covered.
0: So to your process, um, I understand that you use pre-made stencils that you make so that when you're in the spots, what, under cover of darkness? Do you do this at night? Yeah, you know,
4: typically, yeah, but
0: But that speeds up the process, right, to have done some of the work in advance and then to make the stencil. Yeah,
4: definitely.
0: (laughs) And then so how long might it take you to do, say, a cat? I saw a cat on like a kind of transformer electrical box. Yeah, you know,
4: the cat that you're mentioning is probably about 30, 35 hours of cutting. I think that one was five or six layers. It's a lot of work in terms of in the studio. But then when I get out there at night, eh, For that many layers, you know, it kind of depends on the color of the paint, but yeah, 45 minutes. Do people ever catch a glimpse of you? A couple people, yeah. What have they
0: done? What have their reactions been? Well, to be honest, for the most part,
4: it's younger people. that will be out at night. And at this point, they're all like, oh, you smile. They run up, they give me a five. You know, one person gave me a candy bar. They want to invite me, come to the bar, buy you a beer. So it's been overwhelmingly positive,
0: to be honest. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the Boulder street artist who goes by the name Smile. That's how he signs his work, which uh, is often illegally placed on public and private surfaces throughout Boulder. Uh, this is the subject of some discussion uh, in terms of city ordinances as well at the moment. You know, Boulder's a small town, really. I know it's growing, but it, it still feels like a small town to me. Do you worry about your cover being blown? I mean, how much cover can you really have?
4: I don't really worry about it getting blown because I. the few people that do know me as the artist and as a person, they find it exciting. There's an excitement to either to know or to not know who the artist is. So I find people don't really want to tell others. It's sort of like, you know, my secret. Hey, I know who you are. Good work. You know, keep it up.
0: Right. But you're like one tweet of your photograph away from having that cover blown. Are you willing to go to jail for your work?
4: Well, I mean, with what I put on walls, I think the answer is yes, with the way I keep at it.
0: You were recently in Italy uh, with other street artists. Tell me about this trip. Yeah, you know, it was actually
4: a lot more than I expected. It was an eye-opener in terms of the way that the community overtly embraces street art. This is Bologna? Oh, yeah, Bologna, Florence, and Venice. But I noticed authorities over there. Like, I showed up and I helped my friend about pony, a street artist. He went out on a Sunday, middle of the day, painted a gigantic mural. It took him four hours. Cops would drive by. They don't care. So over there, and like, you know, I put up maybe 35 images in Bologna, Florence, Venice. From what I've heard, they're all still up.
0: How do you distinguish between street art and graffiti or tagging?
4: You know, graffiti and tagging, it's sort of a different cultures. And I think the graffiti and the tagging is more insular. They do it for each other. They do it to mark turf, you know, mark territory.
0: Right, like the messages aren't readily accessible to the average Joe. Yeah, Exactly and they
4: have a little bit of a competition they'll cover each other up. You know, in Bologna, apparently there's a giant brawl, a street fight between different tagging groups. So it's more antagonistic. Whereas street artists, I think, maybe we're older, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a little more respect for each other's art uh, and cooperation.
0: What do your parents think of you
4: at doing this? You know, once they find, well, actually, my mother called me and said, hey, I'm seeing this stuff around town. Looks like the stuff you used to draw (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's how she found out but they're they evolved into liking it they're happy about it at first they're a little bit like what are you doing you know don't go to jail you think you're Banksy but now they're totally in on it Banksy is he an idol yeah uh, I mean he definitely inspired but I think he basically inspired anyone that does street art but yeah I like the fact that he's still anonymous I think is awesome
0: that's like ideally I could just be smile forever and stay anonymous. Do you want to take this work to a larger sphere? I mean, Banksy has been seen all over. Well, his work has been seen all over the world.
4: Yeah, I would. I would like to. I'm not sure what that entails, but I enjoy traveling. You know, I'm meeting with street artists elsewhere, and it's something I'd like to grow into for sure.
0: You have a day job? Yeah. And I won't ask you where that is. It would obviously give something of you away. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Boulder street artist Smile. He would only talk to us if we masked his voice. See photos of his work at cprnews.org. Boulder is trying to open the door to more sanctioned street art with its new public art plan. Matt Schazansky leads Boulder's Office of Arts and Culture.
3: We can't really go down the road of condoning vandalism but it is important that we understand our community's desire for lots of different, vibrant work to happen.
0: Chazansky says it's unclear what that will look like, but it could mean commissioning more public art and giving artists more opportunities to have their work out on the streets. But thrill-seekers like Smile may not fall in line.
4: Amen.
1: Sound
0: that saved
4: like me
2: I was
0: lost. This is legendary folk singer Judy Collins singing Amazing Grace. The Library of Congress has added her rendition from 1970 to its National Recording Registry. It joined Judy Garland's Over the Rainbow and an NWA's album Straight Outta Compton. Collins spent her formative years in Colorado, and she's in the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Let's listen back to our 2011 interview with Collins. She just published her autobiography called Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, My Life in Music. I asked Collins about her youth and about her father.
5: Yes, he had a radio show for 30 years and started in Seattle and then moved to L.A. and then to Denver. And people knew him. His name was Chuck Collins, and he had a regular radio show and was a star in Colorado and Denver. He really was. He really took the place by storm. And we all loved Colorado. I still consider it my home, and I love to be there and uh I've written a lot about it in my new book, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. I've written about the early years in Denver, studying with Dr. Brico, playing the piano, going up to Lookout Mountain, hanging out with Lingo the Drifter and the folk music crowd, and then working in the mountains. So those years were very important in my life, and I still look at them with a lot of, uh, a lot of pleasure and uh, glad I was there.
0: Your father's radio show, he, he was a singer, right?
5: He was a pianist, a singer. He told uh, Mae West stories. He read poetry from Dylan Thomas and read Emerson and and, uh, talked about politics and was just a great singer and a great performer.
0: What station was your dad on? KOA. On KOA. Do you sing at all like him?
5: Probably. Um, I think I have a lyrical voice as his was lyrical. I also choose kind of songs that he probably would have approved of and did.
0: He he was inspired like you were by the natural beauty here and he wrote a, he wrote a song called Colorado Skies.
5: Yes, he did.
0: Do you remember it at all?
5: Oh sure, Colorado, Colorado, Colorado is a place to be. And actually after his death in 1968, I was doing a big concert in Aspen and um it was a a family reunion, and it was also a show that was featuring Chris Christofferson and a couple of concerts at the, at the Wheeler Opera House, and I decided that I better write a song about Colorado, so I wrote, since he had already, and, and so I wrote The Blizzard, really, for that uh, television show. One night on the mountain, I was headed for Estes, when the roads turned to ice, and it started to snow. On the chains in a whirl of white powder Halfway up to Burset, near a diner I know And the lights burned inside Shining down through the snowfall Thought it was cold and the temperature dropping
0: We're talking with Judy Collins, and uh, you mentioned a little earlier Antonia Brico, who was, uh, I guess, an instrumental teacher, instrumental and instrumental in your life. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) and and you were really trained in your earliest years in classical music.
5: Well, I had a multiple training. I certainly learned all the songs of Rodgers and Hart. I went on my father's radio show and sang... uh, Dear Hearts and Gentle People with him and sang in the opera choruses and choirs with Brico, as well as playing the piano and playing with her orchestra. But all along, I had been trained as a classical pianist, but I sang in the school choir, the church choir, starred in Cinderella when I was 11, you know, singing Someday My Prince Will Come. So I had a very eclectic musical life growing up. And it wasn't until I was 15 or so that I found folk music to add to that mix.
0: I want to talk about how you found folk music, perhaps how it found you, but uh, about your piano playing. You write in the book that you had a peculiar gift. What was the peculiar gift?
5: Well, that I could play anything that I heard, and of course that used to drive Brico nuts. Someone asked me what had changed the idea with classical pianists, classical musicians, that they should not improvise, because he said before the turn of the century... From the 1800s to the 1900s, classical musicians quite regularly would improvise. But after that turn of the century, it became unfashionable. And classical musicians, for the most part, do not know how to improvise. Uh, It's not, there are exceptions, of course. But many of my friends who play cello, who play um, flute, who play other instruments, really couldn't come and, and play a line to a song unless it was written down, if it was the last thing they did. So it was an interesting question, and Brico hated the fact that I could make up songs and play anything I heard, and she said, this will ruin you (laughs) as a classical pianist. She was right, by the way.
0: You write that while you were at East High School in Denver, folk music like a beautiful wild bird flew into my living room window and made a perfect landing. It was in the form of a song called The Gypsy Rover.
1: The gypsy rover come over the hill Down through the valley shady He whistled
4: and sang till the greenwood rang And he won
0: the heart of a lady What was it about that song?
5: Well, it was a story, first of all, very a beguiling story of this young girl who runs off with a gypsy i always say when i when i sing it in concert i say you know she's a hippie who turned 16 ran off with a gypsy and then her father found her and realized that he was bill gates so everything was fun <laughs> but it was it just completely swept me up and i got my friends to listen and we gathered the, song, the the words together and pretty soon we were singing it i was singing it and they were dancing to it
0: you just got a, a show together Like that?
5: Oh, yes. Absolutely.
0: And where would you perform?
5: All over town. We performed at the Lions Club and the Kiwanis Club and the Elks Club and the PTA and Fitzsimmons General Hospital, everywhere in town, and the school show.
0: You were a frequent patron of the Denver Folklore Center.
5: Yes, I I lingo actually found us i mean he lingo the drifter I, I did a concert for the swallow hill group the other day in denver and i was so shocked that nobody knew who lingo the drifter was so i hope that my new book uh, sweet judy blue eyes will change all that because i do talk about him he really was a big influence on me had a radio show in denver and exposed all of us and also was head of the denver folklore center
0: And he enters in, he's just, he strikes me as a kind of wonderfully mysterious character. He was. Lingo the Drifter, such a great name, even. He
5: had, I was told by Studs Terkel that he had known this fellow named Paul Leschek in Chicago. And Paul Leschek had a terrible tragedy in his life. He lost his wife and his child in an accident. And He decided that he was going to throw everything over in Chicago, come to Denver, take a new name, create a whole new existence as Lingo the Drifter, and do nothing but sing Woody Guthrie and uh, Pete Seeger songs, which he did. Uh, He bought a house, a a cabin up on Lookout Mountain, and, and had all these wild parties with folk singers, and I was invited to come and join them. So I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different kinds of music, folk music up there. It was great.
0: At what point does politics enter for you? The, the, the oh, realm it was of, always there. You know, we, always... we
5: were very politically motivated family. We were always taught we had to partake and argue about the war. My father was a true blue uh, FDR Democrat, and my parents had grown up in the Depression. I mean, who could not be happy for the New Deal? Ask me that today. I mean, who was not celebrating the New Deal? Who was not celebrating the GI Bill? who was not celebrating the Marshall Plan. I mean, everybody was. And it seems to me the kind of thinking that went around in those days ought to come back with a wild force, and we ought to put all these crooks in jail who have stolen you know, the pony and the saddle and the the, the, the pile of manure, as they say. So I'm very, very politically, uh, um, let's say my, my wits are very sharp about what I want to see and what I don't want to see. So when the 60s came along, I was... Completely ready for them,
0: you sound a bit like an occupy protester there,
5: oh well, I will be. if I could just get off the road for a day or two, I <laughs> certainly would be
0: uh, Your first real paying gig as a folk musician was at a bar in Boulder that wasn't exactly a folk venue.
5: well, it was a it wasn't even a bar, it was a kind of restaurant, Michael's pub. Sounds like a bar, doesn't it? But yeah. <laughs> it was really a place to go and have a nice pizza dinner and some pasta i mean it was it was sort of about a step or two up from the sink or Tuloggis or some of the other joints in boulder and it was a place which featured music. It was not my music; it was barbershop quartets and uh, accordion players but but they did have a musical show with the dinners. So that's why I called my father and asked him if he could get me, somebody who could get me in there and audition, which I did. And then I got my first job. And as I say in my book, I never had to audition again.
0: <laughs> it's a nice thing for a musician to be able to say. It's
5: a very nice thing for a musician to say.
0: Judy Collins, a pleasure to speak with you.
5: It was a treat. Don't you love false? My fault I found. Want what I want. Sorry, my dear.
0: Judy Collins speaking with me in 2011 about her autobiography Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, My Life in Music. The Library of Congress has just honored her, including her 1970 rendition of Amazing Grace in its National Recording Registry. Still to come, a visit to Denver's Ballpark Museum. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Baseball season has arrived. The Colorado Rockies play in Milwaukee today. The home opener is Friday against the Dodgers. Did you know that just steps away from Coors Field, there's a museum dedicated to ballparks? There are wooden seats from the old Tiger Stadium in Detroit and the polo grounds in New York. Even a section of the Green Monster, the left field wall at Fenway Park in Boston. The museum's founder is Bruce Hellerstein, whom I met back in 2013, and for him, this all began with Denver's old minor league team, the Bears, a team he wishes were better known today.
3: I would say, and feel very safe in saying, that the history of the Denver Bears surpassed any competition out there. Over 70% of the Denver Bears went on to play in the major leagues. Bear Stadium, which was the home, was deemed the, the queen of minor league ballparks, Growing up, that's how I fell in love with the game, You going out to Denver Bears games. had the
0: Denver Bears in your blood.
3: Well, it was love at first sight, and uh, not only the game itself, but the ballparks, Old Bears Stadium, and uh, people think that, geez, I must have come from this family that took me to games, and... No, it was the other way around. I took people to games. I was this little seven- or eight-year-old that started <laughs> taking people. You don't laugh. It's true. I can see you dragging
0: and, your parents uh, right by the arms.
3: Uh, that literally was the case. My parents did not like baseball. And you,
0: you have a photo of Bear Stadium. Yes. A giant black-and-white photo. It's
3: essentially where the football stadium is today, right? Well, it's actually the parking lot adjacent to um, – uh, Sports Authority field, Bear Stadium was the jewel, and it evolved into Mile High Stadium, and the name changed in 1969, and of course, when the Colorado Rockies became, you know, the major league team here in 1993, they played the 93 and 94 season out at Mile High Stadium.
0: You've got a lot of Denver Bears memorabilia. You have uniforms, you've got pennants, you've got a trophy. Let's talk about one of the uniforms. It's red, white, and blue, and basically the top part of the chest is blue. There's a big white area in the middle, and then it's blue
3: again near the knees. Tell me about this uniform. Well, as you described those areas, the white section is a strike, and it was known as the strike zone uniform, and the portion you described as as blue would be a ball, and it was... Presumably done to aid the umpire and possibly the the pitcher on on, uh, balls and strikes, the players and the managers, the umpires all hated it, so it didn't last very long. But it was the only one ever used, to my knowledge, in uh, professional or amateur baseball. A strike zone uniform. So it was only on the Bears team, and it was only in the one season? Not only in the one season. I'm not sure it even lasted the whole season. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in fact, Do, I, I don't think it did.
0: I think that if you ask 10 people on the streets, uh-huh. 10 of them might not
3: have heard of the Denver Bears. Right. I will say this. People who grew up here, not only have they heard of the Denver Bears, they have a, uh, a huge attachment to it. Do you have a, a particular memory etched in your brain about a Bears game? i never forget back in 1958 And what they would do on an annual basis is have a mid-season All-Star game between the team that led the league at that point against the All-Stars of the then American Association. Well, guess what? The Denver Bears were so great, they practically played every year, and they hosted the All-Stars. And I went out there. remember it was a Monday night. My dad was working, so my mom took my brother and me out there, raining and raining, and I wouldn't leave that game for anything. It was a great game, and the All-Star Games were standing room only. They got 20,000 people to watch us, and they were great players. For example, I remember in 1958, Pumpsy Green played. Well, he happened to be the first black player in the history of the Boston Red Sox. The Bears eventually became a A team,
0: and my understanding is that A teams are often associated with major league teams, sort of feeders for them. So who were the Bears associated with?
3: Oh, my gosh, I I mean, it would take me uh, fingers on each hand to, to go through them. This is what makes baseball so incredible. Okay, who's on the Denver Bears in 1955? A guy by the name of Don Larson. What is Don Larson famous for? The only man in the history of baseball, before, after, you name it, to ever pitch a perfect game in a World Series. And guess when he did it? The next year.
0: I thought I might just mention that one very cool thing you have is one of the last remaining pieces of Bears Stadium in Denver, which is this bench, and also pieces from classic ballparks all over the country, seats from Crosley Field in Cincinnati, Tiger Stadium in Detroit, and something from the original Yankees Stadium. Let's go check
3: it out. Sounds great, Ryan. So Bruce Hellerstein, what are we looking at here? We are looking at a totally unique item that uh, is as closely associated with Mickey Mantle's career as, as anything. It's the drain cover that he tripped over in the 51 World Series that screwed up his knee for the rest of his career. A drain cover. It has actually the New York logo on it.
0: Yes, the NY and this would have been a drain cover just, what, near the field? Uh, the this out-
3: would have been in the outfield area, actually, in right center field.
0: Mickey Mantle trips
3: over it. Yeah, what happened on the play was that Mickey was a rookie playing in, his, in the World Series, and there was a guy called Joe, uh, named Joe DiMaggio playing center field. <laughs> Ball is hit in between them. So Mickey, in deference to the great Joe DiMaggio, just kind of stopped in his tracks, and he didn't see the drain cover and tripped over it. And the punchline is, guess who hit the ball? Willie Mays, the three greatest players in baseball at the time, all converge on the same play. Wow! That is one of the magical moments of baseball.
0: Not so magical, perhaps, for Mickey
3: Mantle. Well, not only that, but if I can just kind of uh, put things in perspective. Mickey Mantle, and anybody who tells you otherwise is not telling the truth. He was so far above anybody else. You ask any kid growing up in the 50s or 60s, there was only one ball player. It didn't matter what sport you're talking about. It was Mickey Mantle. What did this fall mean for him? Well, it, it definitely re- restricted his uh, incredible speed. Running from home plate to first base, he was the fastest player in baseball. And so that certainly took its toll. He was in a lot of pain when he played. And who knows how great he would have been if he didn't have this injury.
0: The key here is in the name of this museum, right? It's the Ballpark Museum. What is it about the parks themselves that fascinate you?
3: See, the old ballparks weren't built by these sophisticated architectural firms that said, okay, let's make this street design and let's do this. No, they took a neighborhood and literally took a city block with perimeter of streets and placed a ballpark, and that created the constraints that defined the configuration of the ballpark. classic example, Fenway Park with the big green monster wall they have out there. It's because they have Landau Street right behind it. Uh, Each park was so unique. And because it it had to fit into such a small space in an urban setting – the acoustics and the intimacy, you were on top of the action. Well, let's wrap up
0: given the home opener this week with, uh, something from the Rockies and I believe from their first game, which was an away game, right? Right. Right. What do you have?
3: I have the historic bat used by Andres Galarraga for the first hit in the history of the Rockies. It was at Shea stadium in New York. It hit against uh, Dwight Gooden and, uh, bat just came right out out of the field after that first hit.
0: It's a black wood bat, and it's got a bunch of signatures, it looks like.
3: Yeah, it actually says, bat used for first hit Rockies, April 5th, 1993, Andres Galarraga, who, of course, was the Rockies' first baseman. This was his Louisville Slugger, and it actually says, to Barry, and To Barry is Barry Halper, the most famous private collector in the history of collecting, who is uh, deceased. But that went to his uh, collection and ended up here uh, on loan. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, Ron, thank you very much, and uh, this was awesome.
0: Bruce Hallerstein is founder of the National Ballpark Museum in Denver's Lodo neighborhood. We visited in 2013. The Rockies' home opener is Friday. That's Colorado Matters for today with special thanks to Michael Hughes and Matt Hurris. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.